0: Much of the Christian life is remembering and believing your new status as a child of God. That's much of your life as a Christian. Your sanctification is remembering and believing this is who God has made me. And then I'm going to live out of that new identity, following Jesus because who Jesus has made you. Keeping... God's commands, but keeping those attached to God's declaration of you. And that, that's something that can be difficult is because we separate those. We separate the commands of God from the declaration of God, but the word of God always keeps them together. You know what I'm saying? This is what I'm saying. The flow of the world is this perform to earn an identity. But the flow of the gospel is this is who God is. Then he acts out of his character in the person and work of Jesus, gives you an identity based on Jesus, and then calls you to live out that new identity. That's the flow of the gospel. He makes you new, so you live new. He makes you loved, so you live as a loved lover. You live out of the new identity, not performing to get one, but living out of it because it's already been secured you. And that's what's happening in this passage. The first section of 1 John 2, 12 through 17 is this is who God has made you. And then the second is what God commands of you to live out this new identity. It's what theologians call the indicative and the imperative. The indicative essentially means this is what's true. This is, uh, if we're talking about what I'm talking about, this is who you are in Christ. And then the imperative is the command of do this as a follower of Christ. So when you're reading your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to always keep those two connected. You saw it in James, where James heavily emphasizes imperatives and commands, like do this, do this, do this. But if you can trace it back, you'll always find an indicative that that imperative is attached to. You making sense? Is this? I'll tell you another one. I'll give you an example. The book of Ephesians is set up in this. The whole structure of Ephesians is set up in this way. The first three chapters of Ephesians is the indicative. This is who you are in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. This is what Christ has done for you. This is what Christ has done for you. This is who you are. And then chapter 4 uh, turns a little bit on this uh, hinge, and it says, therefore, because of all this, because of all that, that God has done for you in Christ, because of who you are, live this way and he starts giving the imperatives, right? Live as God's holy chosen ones. Walk in a a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called to. And so what I, I want this to be this morning is for us not to gloss over the indicatives, but let them actually sink into our souls. I don't have clever, Ways to try to expose this in you, what I've been praying for is that we would actually just slowly walk through these and let them sink into our consciousness, into our soul, into our hearts and our minds, that we'd actually embrace these and hold on to them. So it's second John. Nope, it's first John, chapter two. First John, chapter two, verse 12. Let this wash over you, receive and believe the truth. This is your reality, Christian. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Stealing, gossiping, lying, not loving, pornography, adultery, sexual immorality, bits of rage, violence, self-righteousness, self-harm, drug abuse, whatever is in your life, John is saying, forgiven. I'm writing to you because you are forgiven. That's who you are. This is indicative. This is your identity. Not defined by your sin any longer, but defined by forgiveness. And in verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Now, he's called his children, uh, uh, his writer's children the whole time. He's probably in his 80s. He's writing to younger believers. And so that first part could be actual children. It could just be the whole congregation that he's writing to. But he does address fathers. These are people that are probably older and wiser, have been around for a minute, uh, have been following Jesus for a while. And he's saying, you're older, you're wiser, and you know the wise one, Jesus, the incarnate God the reality of your life if you're a Christian is that you know the one from the beginning like you actually know him and so I know some of you guys are geeked up to get to verse 16 and 17 but you have to let this sink into your soul this is who you are You know God. He's revealed his glory to you. You have fellowship with God. You're known. You're known by God. This is who you are. And he continues, I'm writing to young men. So we now have younger folks involved. Because you have conquered the evil one. So to the youthful, the passionate, the strong, you are a conqueror. Now what you'll find as we keep going is that he has different delineations of age groups and people he's talking to, but if you're a child of God, all of this is true of you. This is yours in Christ. So if you're five, if you're 85, you have conquered the evil one. That's who you are. You're a conqueror. The risen king has put the evil one under your feet. You're a valiant warrior. I think of that line because when God comes to Gideon and judges, he says, essentially, hello, Gideon. You're a valiant warrior. That's who, and in Christ, that's how all of us are. That's who you are. You're a conqueror. Verse 14, I've written to you, children, children, So now he starts repeating. Because you have come to know the Father. So family, look at me. You're beloved children of God. Adopted into his forever family. So you're no longer a slave. You're no longer an orphan. So you're not a slave to fear. You're not a slave to sin. You're not a a, a slave to your desires. It's not just how it is. That's not you. You are adopted. You're a son and a daughter of the Father. This is who we are. I've written to you fathers, because you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. That's the same, repeated. The next little phrase he's going to expand, but that same one, fathers, because you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. Now, if John's 80, and these guys are older as well, it's possible that they were aware of or saw Jesus, the incarnate God in the flesh. But if not, they know based upon the witnesses that he's the one from the beginning. He's, he's John 1. He's the Logos. He's the word who became flesh. He's the one who's been eternally reigning and loving with the Father and the Spirit before creation is ever created. You've come to know him. Dads, you have children. Think about this. He's saying fathers. You've come to know them. Dads, you have children, but you also have God as your father. That's who you are. I've written to you young men, this is the last little section here. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. He said that, but now he expands. You are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. So you, you may be young. You may be zealous, a zealous follower of Jesus. You're strong. Why? Because the good news of God is in you. The gospel message remains in you. That's why you're strong. That's why you've conquered the evil one not because you performed and made it happen, but because you've put your faith in the one who has. And to be united with him is to have the same thing about him applied to you, conqueror, warrior. The gospel has sunk into your soul. The spirit is with you and in you, John 14 tells us empowering you to fight so you're you're not strong on your own but when you come to jesus weak like we all are he gives you his spirit and empowers you to push back darkness the darkness that's in you and also the darkness that's around you and in us we actually push forward now why would he do that again because that's our identity You're just living out your new identity. Before we get to verses 67, you have to see this. All of this is connected to and flows out of what he says here. This is who you are, conqueror. This is who you are. Which means, which means this is a powerful confrontation of our temptation to fall into, I'll say it better, to give into, that's a better way to say it, to give into a victim mentality. Now, I, 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 we have talked a lot about suffering. We're very serious about suffering and, and leading you to grieve and lament the suffering and to be able to talk about that and in the counseling that we do, all that stuff. But let me just be very clear. There's a difference between suffering in the world and grieving your losses to God and running to God in the midst of your suffering versus suffering this world and then giving into a victim mentality and seeing you as just a victim of all your circumstances. Because Christ was the victim, you are a conqueror. You don't live, have to live in this mentality. You don't have to live in this, this state of mind. Romans will say, you're actually more than a conqueror. You're like, tell me, what, what does that mean? I, he doesn't say, he just says you're more than a conqueror. Like, am I captain of the conquerors? Do I have a general status? Tell me more. We don't know, but you're more than that. See, so you don't have to give in to this victim mentality that says, man, I'm just getting beat up and harassed all the time. Life is meaningless. It's all suffering. I just give up. I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore, or I'm going to try to, or I will sometimes on Sunday mornings, but really I'm not going to give my life to him. Let me think about this. Some of you guys fight fake soldiers for three hours a day on call of duty but won't fight your sin. you're more than a conqueror embedded in your DNA because you're an image bearer of God is that you want to fight something as in you want to uh, uh, be a part of God's meaning and purpose and work in this world that's instilled in you because you're an image bearer of God. The question is will you actually fight what's worth fighting or will all your fighting be in fantasy? This is who you are now. So live out this new identity. In what way? Well, God will show you. This is verse 15. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. And so if you're new and you have a new identity, you've been given a new heart by God, and that new heart swaps loves and hates. What your heart previously hated, God, now it loves. What your heart previously loved, your sin, now it hates. This is what happens. This is who you are. And this is an imperative, a command. Do not love the world. Now you're like, well, I'm a big fan of hiking. Well, that's not what we're talking about, okay? So take it easy. You can still wear all of your uh, you know, Columbia gear and Patagonia. Enjoy that, okay? We're not talking about creation, the world. What he's talking about when John is speaking of the world most of the time in his epistle and definitely in this specific position is the idolatrous age. The world system organized in rebellion against God. That's what he's talking about. Do not love. The world system organized in rebellion against God. The idolatrous age is just flooding you. Like uh, John Calvin said that the, the heart is a perpetual idol factory. But if you can just turn around and then just think about how culture is created by humans, then you know that our culture is a massive, perpetual idol factory. And so he's saying, no, no, don't love the idols. Don't love the values of this world system against God. The system and its values, which are all led and directed by the prince of the power of the air. The devil, the evil one. It's like, don't love this. And John up to this point has made making a case and he continues in it. And this is the case. A believer should have a growing absence of sin in them and a growing presence of love in them. A diminishing love and practice of sin and a forever perpetual growing of love. Love for God and love for others in them. And now he clarifies, so because God is love and because he has loved you, you're to love your brothers and sisters. But he also wants to be clear, what are you not to love? What are you not to love? So in chapter 1, he talked about loving your brothers. In chapter 4, he'll talk a lot about loving your brothers and sisters. He's going to clarify what you should be. Uh, choosing, where you should be going with your love. But he's also going to clarify right here, but not this. Do not love the world and the things in the world. So your affections are not to be inflamed for the things of this world. Your heart is not to be set on the idols and values of this world. You're not to be sacrificing your life for this world. Why? Well, go back to your identity. Your citizenship is in heaven, not this world. You're a, a citizen, not of this world's value systems organized in rebellion against God, but a citizen of God's kingdom. That's who you are. Your citizenship is heaven. Your Savior is in heaven. Your treasure is Jesus. Your Father, God, determines your values. This is who we are. And then he breaks it down the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, in the pride in one's possessions. All right, the lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh is the cravings of our sinful hearts. It's like appetite, our appetite. It's the cravings for sexual desire and sinful pleasure, craving sinfully approval. It's when we fulfill natural desires, God-given desires, in a way that is contrary to God's will. It's like a desire for... For sex is not a bad desire, right? Where is it expressed, though, in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman for life to show that they're uh, uh, displaying the gospel of Jesus who laid down his life for his bride, the church? Yeah, that's beautiful. But to fulfill that desire outside or contrary to God's will, that's what he's talking about, the lust of the flesh. Where we're focused on ourselves and pursue our own desires and path in self-sufficient independence from God. Like you've given us our bodies with our emotions and our thoughts and our desires, but we're going to do whatever we want with those. That's what we're saying. Sexual appetite leads to sexual immorality. Physical appetite leads to gluttony and drunkenness. That's the lust of the flesh. It's what Christians have been calling for years, worldliness, where we've co-opted, adopted the values, the desires, the idols of this idolatrous age and not followed through with who we are in Christ and lived out that new identity. Let me just say it this way. not. Everything you hunger for is worth hungering for. Just because it's there, just because you hunger for it, doesn't mean you have to hunger for it. Doesn't mean it's worth hungering for. Sometimes my country living, growing up in a small town till I was 11, makes me want to eat. Bob's heat-em up tacos at 7-Eleven when I'm in West Texas. But it's not worth it, right? Like your, your lust of the flesh is not worth it. You may have a hunger for it, but that but just having a hunger doesn't validate that desire. Just because it's there doesn't mean it's good. The lust of the flesh. The path of discipleship is growing to love what Jesus loves. And to be against what Jesus is against. And do you know what Jesus loves? Jesus loves the Father, and he's infatuated with doing the will of the Father. We'll see a little bit when we we look at the Gospel of John. And he's against, Jesus is against, Sin that ruins and destroys and harms. So don't love the world. Do not love the world and everything in it, including the lust of the flesh. And then he goes to the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is is connected to what you see. And so it's a a greed and covetousness uh, coming from what you have witnessed or seen around you. So like the materialistic commercials that you see, uh, your neighbors with new cars, your friends with new fancy toys, like this is what's happening. We, We sinfully crave and lust for more and newer and better, but lust is never quenched. It's like a feral cat. You feed it and it keeps coming back hungry. It's the lust of the eyes, those things that you view and see and watch and be like, I want that. I have to have that. And we've talked about this in James, but you know a desire has become inordinate when it says it's turned from a desire to a demand. When it says, I want that thing to like, I have to have that thing. Because a lot of this is going to be wisdom in some of the things. Because why? Because you should enjoy food and drink to the glory of god you should enjoy your family to the glory of god you should enjoy your kids running around and playing to the glory of god and you should enjoy sleep to the glory of god there's a lot of things you enjoy to the glory of god the question for you is to ask when has this desire become sinful or when am i trying to get this desire and it's contrary to god's will which is sinful Number three, the pride in one's possessions. I know in some of your translations, it says the, the pride in one's life, but literally translated to the idea of like boasting and having arrogance in what you own. Uh, uh, it can be more than just possessions. It's like your prestige, your power, your position, like you're boasting in, I've got this. What? Well, I've got all this stuff, or I've got this status, this title, Or I have all this power over these people. And you're boasting and saying, like, look at this. Look what I've done. Look what I have. Essentially, you're taking refuge in your positions or your title. I mean, it's the tendency of us to make our career, our stuff, our achievements, our social standing into idols. Where you stake your well-being on your position and possessions, you boast it because, like, I feel good now. Like I've got this, so I can rest now. That's when you know that's something that has gone awry. When whatever you fill in that blank is not Jesus, then something's gone awry, right? I have blank, so now I'm okay. So I have position. I have these all these toys, I have this gadgets, I have this house, I have these cars, or, or I have this respect from all these people. I have this, so I'm okay, I'm validated, I'm justified. Consider this is put on flesh in Adam and Eve, in the garden. The evil one lies to her, lies about God, and this is what it says, Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. What's that? The lust of the flesh. And delightful to look at. Lust of lies. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. The pride of life. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. This is the typical path of everyday people because this is the path of the world system. Like, I want this. I'm craving this. Oh, I see it. I got to have it. And then, yes, this is what's going to be the answer for me. I'm going to do this. But Jesus took a different path. When the evil one tempted him in the wilderness, Jesus said, no. No. Or I'll say, he said yes, but he said yes to what? To do not love the world and the things in the world. The second Adam passed where the first Adam fell. The devil tempts Jesus to tell this stone to become bread. That's his first temptation of Jesus. I, I, I think that's the lust of the flesh. You crave for this, you can do it, you can make it happen. You Don't you have the power to turn rocks into bread? Aren't you hungry? You've been fasting for 40 days, get it. And then he tempts Jesus with seeing all the kingdoms of the world. Like, let me show you all this. That's the lust of the eyes. Like, look at all that. This could all be yours. Sands the cross. You don't have to go to the cross. Just listen to me. Do what I say. Bow to me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. (laughs) That's the lust of the eyes. showing him all these things. And then the, the devil challenged Jesus to jump off the temple and have the angels catch him. And that's the pride of life. That's like, hey, don't you have angels that you can just tell to do whatever you want whenever you want? Can't you? Then jump off this and they'll catch you. You'll tell them to catch you. Just tempting him again and again and again and again. But Jesus loved the Father and the love of the Father squeezes out your love for the world. Jesus shows us that the Father is better than all the cravings of our lust and pride. A few hundred years ago, Thomas Chalmer, kind of a Puritan, uh, wrote a sermon on 1 John 2.15, and he called it the expulsive power of a new affection. And he stated, our problem is naturally our lives are guided. I'll start over. <laughs> I always struggle with these old guys <laughs> and their clunky verbiage. But here we go. He stated, our problem is that naturally, our lives are guided and controlled by love for the world. What can we do? Resolve to do better, try to convince ourselves that the world is not really so alluring. Like, you know what, you can try to numb yourself and be like, oh, just keep telling yourself, it's not that great, it's not that great. Keep watching the commercials. it's like, ah, oh, it's not that great. It's like, oh, it looks good, but I and it's not that great. Just keep telling yourself that. Is that how you'll get through this? No, he said, that is altogether incompetent and ineffectual. For nobody can dispossess the heart of an old affection but by the expulsive power of a new one. What he's saying is you can't get rid of this loving the things of the world or loving the world out of your heart until an affection for something deeper and better, a greater affection comes in and pushes that old one out. He says, we cannot choose what we love, but always love. But we always love what seems desirable to us. Thus, we will only change what we love when something proves itself to be more desirable to us than what we already love. I will then always love sin in the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. And family, the good news of all the indicatives that we saw earlier from 1 John 2 is this, that this is what the Spirit of God does. In us. This is what he does makes us taste and see that the Lord is good, supremely good, and causes us to desire him more than anything else. And so now by seeing the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus our hearts are overwhelmed by affection for like this is how much he loves me this is what he's done for me this is who he's made me and so this affection for Jesus overwhelms this old affection for the world and it pushes it out a disciple a disciple of Jesus craves the goodness of the Father and longs to see God's glory and boast in Jesus' work on their behalf. Do you hear what I said? I just answered every aspect of the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And what I said is, contra to that, a disciple of Jesus craves the goodness of the Father. A disciple of Jesus longs to see God's glory. That's what you want to see. That's what you covet after without coveting. Does that make sense? Because you can't want God so much that it becomes wrong. You can't desire God so much that it gets inordinate. There are no inordinate desires when it comes to passion for Jesus. And so you see God's glory. And then what do you boast in? Not your possessions, not your position, but you boast in Jesus' work on your behalf. That's what a disciple's done. A disciple's heart has been overwhelmed by the affection for Jesus, and it pushes out affections for the things of this world. This is what John is doing in us. This is where he's leading us. To inflame our hearts with love, but then also clarify, where should this love be directed? To pump you so full of the love of God that you're exuding love, but then giving you guardrails and clarity of like, but this is where the love should be pointed at. This is where you should uh, send it. This is where it should be heading towards. Loving God, loving your brothers and sisters, not loving the world or the things of the world. In a book called Embracing Obscurity, I just, I want to put this juxtaposition for you, but it, it talks about what does it look like to, to love the things of the world? What does this practically look like compared with the things of the Father? And so I, I told you this is a little bit different. I just wanted you to walk through and try to sink in into those indicatives but I now just want to put this contrast before you to see, okay, maybe as a diagnostic, maybe just as encouragement, it's like, this is where we're going. This is where you're going to go. The things of the world, this is what it's like. The focus is on me. Make as much money as possible. Live comfortably. Make a name for yourself. Do whatever makes you happiest. I'm sorry, did we get this right? Is this supposed to be American dream at the top or things of the world? keep going that was a dumb joke because i know what i wrote and uh i'm going through this i'm just saying it's very similar to the american dream right okay do whatever makes you happiest teach your children to love themselves and seek fulfillment look like a model in a magazine and turn your physical appearance into an idol offer acts of service when you feel like it on your terms stay married as long as your spouse meets your needs come across as powerful, influential, and are interesting. Use worldly wisdom to accrue wealth. Dress to impress others. The things of the world are passing away. I do the will of the world. If if I could say it differently and and less uh, sarcastically, is this? um, This is really the description of a disciple's lifestyle but it's the disciple of the prince of the power of error and the world that he leads. Like this is the rhythms, the life, the attitudes, the thoughts. But think about the things of the father. Well, let me come back to the things of the world because I don't think I'll come back to this later, but when you're thinking about the things of the world, they're transient. They're temporal. They're only going to last. They're passing away. We saw it two weeks ago in First John that he said, "The true light is already shining, but the darkness is fading away." Meaning, th- there's an end table. There's a deadline to how long the world system in rebellion against God continues to exist. It's passing away. I mean, in one sense, you can just think about that from, like, Rome. Do we worship the same idols as Rome? No. Maybe different ways, right? But not the same gods that we would call. Even those have passed away. I'm just saying, like, even between cultures and cultures over time, things have changed and passed away. But there's going to be a point when all idols cease to exist and be worshiped. Where all the values of this world are going to cease to exist, to be eradicated. They're passing away. So you could give your whole life to doing the will of the things of the world, but all of it is going to be rubbish by the end. It's not going to continue. But he ends with, but the one who does the will of God will remain forever forever. So, so not only is like this the best path for your life now, because it's the wise path, it's the path that you've been created and is saved for, but it's also the path that has endurance, that actually lasts. Like you can be doing stuff today, like loving the Father and others, that will transcend and continue and have some connection to the kingdom in its fullness when Jesus sets up his throne forever. It will last. It will continue. But all of that list that we just said, it's going to pass away. But now think about the things of the Father. Or, again, maybe just a description of a disciple's lifestyle of following Jesus, the things of the Father. The focus is on God. Give as much money away as possible, and spend even yourself and spend even yourself. And spend even yourself on others, I mean like your own life. Give it away to others. Life is not about comfort. Oof. Take it easy. But about doing hard things now so that we can reap rewards in the life to come. Make His name great. Do whatever makes God happiest. Teach your children to love and obey God. Treat your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit and cultivate inner beauty. Be a servant, even when it's uncomfortable or inconvenient. Serve your spouse the way Christ models for her and choose to love him or her for your life. Give preference to others in words and actions. Value true wisdom, which is the fear of God over all treasure on earth. Be content just to have clothes. The things of the Father will abide forever. I do the will of the Father. So tucked away in that last little section is this idea and and what is the crux of the problem in us. And that question is, even in our new identity, will we choose to do our will or the will of the Father? Will we submit ourselves to cultivating and putting habits that form us more and more into the love of God, or will we choose, my will be done, my kingdom come. Jesus, the one we're following, the one that John has learned so much from and is referencing so much throughout his books, said many things about the will of God, especially in John's gospel. This is what Jesus said. I want you to think about doing the will of the Father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. All right, so think about that in lines of what we just said in 1 John. What it means is that what what Jesus hungered for is to do the will of the Father. What he craved, what he lusted after, what he loved was to do the will of the Father. John 5.30 says, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. We talk a lot about the will of God uh, in relation to like our jobs, moving, those kind of decisions, right? Like we we want to ask and see like, what is is your will for this next season of life? Uh, And that's great. I'm fine. We, like, I will pray for you, I'll talk to you, we'll nuance some of those discussions, we'll do pros and cons, but, but can I just say, uh, can we not have all of our conversation about that and have more conversations on the will of God revealed in Scripture? Meaning, 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, for this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. Living out your new identity is learning that your desires submit to God and his word. So I'm going to follow his will, not mine. And his will for me is my sanctification, my growth in holiness, my uh, becoming more and more like Jesus. That's his will for you. And then later on, next chapter, he says, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do you, the little... It's not a secret, I don't want to put it that way, but, but just the simple truth that wars against all this lust and pride is a grateful heart. All this craving is warred with, fought with, pushed back against by giving thanks to God and everything. Oh, I gotta have this. What do I already have? What has God already blessed me with? Oh, I saw that thing. Oh, my, my neighbor's got this. i got to have this. This will, this will really, like, give me to that next level where I feel like ah, I've got everything I need for everything that I'm doing will be the best. Give thanks to God for everything in Christ Jesus. I've got to have these clothes. I've got to look this way. I've got to get this position the the grace of god is a learning contentment as his child and giving thanks for what he's already giving you and what he's done for you and what he's promised you i've tried to positively put this for you so they can see what are you to love where you actually go but but i'll share with you just A prime example of what this looks like in real life and in real church life. It's 2 Timothy 4.10. And if you know 2 Timothy, that's Paul's last letter. He wrote it in prison in Rome. He's heading towards execution. He's going to be killed for his faith in Jesus. And he writes this letter to Timothy. And uh, he says this. Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. (laughs) So if warning you by just telling you clearly the command of God in verse 15 to do not love the world, if that's not enough, can you take this cautionary tale as a warning? That flirting around with the things of the world will lead to loving the world, which will lead to deserting your faith and your community? He deserted me. Demas left Paul in prison, who's been given his life away for Christ, who is in chains now for Christ's sake. And this brother in arms has left Paul. Why? Because what's more attractive, what's more appealing, what he's seeing, what he's craving is the things of the world. And so he turns his back, not only on Paul, but on Jesus as well. You have a war for love in your heart. You have a war over your affections in your heart. And the things that you love will be the things that you commit to and you follow after and changes all of your doing connected to what you love. You will live out of that love, you will do it. And so the question, or not the question, really just the the confrontation is will you be infatuated with Jesus or with everything that's opposing Jesus what a beautiful epitaph and I may write this for myself one day I did a little funeral this this week kind of a, a surprise but to serve one, and I was thinking about these words from second Timothy four ten. And you know what I'd love for mine to say? Ryan deserted this world because he loved Jesus. Like if that's the summary of the dash between my years of living and dying, I'd love that. I've deserted the love of the world and the things in this world, why? because he loved Jesus. Jesus was more precious, precious to him than anything. Jesus had his heart. Jesus had his imagination and his affections. He was compelled by the love of Jesus to give things away and to sacrifice and to spend his whole life for the sake of the gospel. brothers and sisters if i return to the text i return to this i think all this begins with your identity if your identity is not secure you will not live out of it so you need to do work with what do i actually believe about myself and what god says about me how much has god loved me so many times the inflammation of our hearts and affection for Jesus is because we're meditating and receiving the love that Jesus has for us. So I'm asking you to camp out there to think about that, to consider, to pray. where you not what is your true identity? Because I think you can all intellectually assent to that. What I'm arguing for is where you have you been functionally putting your identity in. And because of that, what have you been giving yourself over to? What are you loving? What are you craving? What are you demanding? And from John's point of view, God is love, and God is graciously calling you to turn from those things and love what He loves, to be against what He's against to follow him in this radical love that's willing to cut ties with anything that messes with your affection for God. Father, I pray for that. I ask that your word would sink into our hearts. Forgiven, we know you conquered the evil one come to know you as Father. We're strong because your word remains in us. We've conquered the evil one, Lord, so I pray that you would press that into our hearts. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.